Thank you, Linda. All right, so back to normal today. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we will be in verses 23 to 34. We'll finish up chapter 11 today. So I'm wearing jeans because I got to go, as soon as this is over, I got to get on a plane and fly to Montana. So I'm just going to go straight to the airport. So that's why I'm wearing jeans, in case anybody that's bothered. It bothered Kathy, so I just want to make sure it wasn't bothering. <laughs> make sure it wasn't bothering any of the rest of y'all. Uh, we're going to finish up the Lord's Supper today, uh, uh, part three. We've been through part one and two, and we missed last week because of the storm. And as I said, we'll finish up chapter 11 today. Let's read, uh, beginning with, we'll start with verses 23 to 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, in our last lesson a couple weeks ago, we looked specifically uh, at what some others believe about the Lord's Supper, and specifically the, the Catholic tradition. And what we saw was that, that the Catholics believe that when you take the Lord's Supper, that the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood uh, of Jesus Christ, that they are turned somehow mystically or miraculously, they are turned into His actual flesh, into His actual uh, blood. This is a, it's a big theological term. It's called transubstantiation, and it means the change of the bread into the actual body of Jesus and the change of the blood of the wine into the actual blood of Jesus. And, and this is something they believe. It is a real change. They're not just saying that. They, they, they believe it actually physically becomes his body and his blood, even though it still appears to be uh, bread and the wine. Now, Today, we're going to look further into that, and we're going to turn to the Bible. And the first, we're going to do two things this morning. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at four reasons why that's not true. Why we don't, as, 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 as most Protestants, don't believe that that is actually what is, what is happening. And so we're going to first look at four reasons why that's not true. Then we'll look at what it does mean. What did he actually mean by the Lord's Supper? What are we doing in all of that? And so we'll finish up with that. So let's start first, four reasons why Jesus did not mean that the bread and the wine are, or the bread and the wine are actually turned into his physical body and his physical blood. The first reason is just what I would call the natural understanding. You see, the most natural way to understand someone, if I, if I came up to you and I said, this is my body, or this is my whatever, the most natural way to understand what I'm saying is that this represents my body, or this represents my blood. Does that make sense? For example, if I showed you a picture of my family, and I said, this is my family, what do I mean? It's a, it's a representation of my family. It's a symbolization of my family. I don't mean that this picture has somehow mystically or miraculously turned into my family. 
But we say that all the time, don't we? This is this, this is that. If I went to a, a play and I looked up on the stage and I said, that's Abraham Lincoln, do I really mean that's Abraham Lincoln? No, the natural, we say that, but the natural understanding is that represents Abraham Lincoln. If I was reading the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and, and everybody, if you've read that, Aslan the Lion represents Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said that himself. If you read that and say that's Jesus Christ, you don't mean that Aslan the Lion is actually Jesus Christ. You mean that he represents Jesus or he symbolizes Jesus. That's the, that's the natural way that, that human beings uh, talk. And so when Jesus said, this is my body, the most natural way we understand what he means is, is in human language is this represents my body. This symbolizes uh, my body. To believe that he actually means that it turns into body, to me, it's just not a natural way to, to read what he, what he says. The second reason uh, that we don't believe that is you have to take the parallel between the bread and the cup. Remember, Jesus says two things. He says, this bread is my body, right? But then he turns around and says, this cup is the new covenant. Remember that? So he's saying two things. Well, if, you, if, if, you, if you're going to take it one way on one side, you have to take it the same way on the, on the other side. And in verse 25, when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, see, everyone agrees that the cup doesn't turn into the new covenant. We all agree that the, the wine represents the blood. The wine, <coughs> excuse me, represents or symbolizes the blood that, that guarantees or purchases um, the blessings of the covenant. Everybody kind of agrees on that. We don't really have any problems with that one. So if we're willing to let this cup as the new covenant mean something more natural than the cup turns into the new covenant, <coughs> excuse me, then we've got to be willing to do the same thing on the front side and let this bread is my body mean something more natural than the bread is turned into, into my body. The third reason is, is Jesus himself. And this is the real reason. This is, this is what we really want to get to. Those who believe that the bread actually becomes Christ's body, they actually refer to a scripture in John chapter 6. Is there some water up here? Does anybody know? Diane? <coughs> I got it. I see it. Yeah, I got it. I'm not one of them preachers that's got to have you go get water. Don't tell Henry I said that. He'd kill me. Uh-oh, what happened to my thing here? <clears throat> All right, I'm sorry about that. Okay. All right, let's go. All right, so most people who, who really say he means that, that it really is turning into the body and he really is turning into the blood, they actually refer back to John chapter 6. And, in, and this is a, a very important scripture where Jesus kind of foreshadows uh, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Let's, let's read this. This is John 6, 35 through 51. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I want, in verse 35, Jesus said this. Man, I'm off this morning. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 51, Jesus goes on, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So this is a, a long passage of Scripture in John where he says, I'm the bread of life. You have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. We're all kind of familiar with this. So Jesus is saying this in verses 35 through 51. And watch verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Does that sound familiar? See, they, when he starts saying, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will never die. They start thinking, what, what is he talking about? Is he, does he mean he's going to give us his own flesh to eat? And that, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's what a lot of people have believed down, down through the ages. Now watch what Jesus does. This is something you'll notice a lot in the Gospels. When Jesus is talking to unbelievers, a lot of times he doesn't lower the bar. What does he do? He raises it. He makes it even harder for them to believe. Watch what he says in verses 53 to 56. Now he's talking to the Jews. So Jesus said to them, these are the Jews that are saying, what, is, what does he mean? We've got to eat his flesh? He says this, watch this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he goes on. Again, he's talking to people who don't want to believe. He says this, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now remember, who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to people that, that are they're already inclined. Not, they don't want to believe. There's, they don't have the Spirit. They don't understand spiritual things. So Jesus doubles down. He even makes it harder. He raises the bar even higher. Makes it harder for them to understand what he's, what he's saying. Now at this point, if you heard that, you might be thinking, well, maybe he does mean that. I mean, he kind of just said it, right? He just said, you've got to eat my flesh, you've got to drink my blood. Maybe Jesus did mean that we have to actually do that, which is exactly what his disciples thought when they heard it. See, they're sitting there listening to this, and they hear him say that, and they think, man, maybe that's what he's talking about. Look at verse 60 to 61. This is his disciples. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, man, this is a, this is a hard saying. Who can, who can hear that? Who can listen to that? Who can understand that? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Does this offend you, he said. Now, watch what he does next. At this point, he knows his disciples are confused. And he doesn't want them to misinterpret. So watch what he says in verse 63. Don't miss this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Everybody see that? They're sitting there thinking, man, do we have to eat his flesh? And watch what he says. Folks, listen to me. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, even if you could eat my flesh, it, it would be no benefit to you at all. It's the Spirit who gives life. And then watch what he says. The words that I just spoke to you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, if you have the Spirit and you can understand spiritual things, you'll understand those words. But if you don't have the Spirit and you don't understand spiritual things, you'll misinterpret those words. Okay? Everybody with me? See, what he's saying to us is don't get hung up 
on my references to the body and the blood being eaten. I'm speaking figuratively. I'm speaking symbolically. I'm speaking representatively. I'm speaking of, of spiritual actions, not physical actions. Don't, don't get hung on what the flesh profits nothing. It's always about the Spirit. Now, so what verse 63 does is it protects the disciples and you and I from making that very same misunderstanding that the unbelieving Jews made that we have to eat His flesh and drink His blood. It says, Jesus said, no, I'm talking about spiritual things here. The flesh, fleshly actions like that mean nothing. They profit you nothing. It's spiritual actions that I'm talking about. So, the, so he's, he's, he's warning them against misinterpreting the same thing that millions and millions and millions of people have misinterpreted down through the ages. Now, number four. Jesus goes on to make this very clear that eating and drinking are spiritual acts. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I, and he said it right at the beginning, and he, he bookends this whole statement with spiritual things. And watch what he said at the very beginning. You might have missed this a while ago. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now watch this. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now look at that verse, and I'll ask you the question, how do you satisfy your hunger? What does he say? You come to me. How do you quench your thirst? You believe in me. See, what he's saying there is he's telling us exactly what he means by eating and drinking. You come to me to eat of me, to, to satisfy your soul in me. You, you, the, when he talks about drinking his blood, he's talking about believing in me, putting your faith and trust in that blood to cover your sins. That's what he's talking about. He says it right there. In other words, the eating and drinking that Jesus is referring to in these, in these scriptures are spiritual acts of the soul drawing near to Christ. It's when we come to Him and when we believe in Him that the hunger and thirst of our soul is quenched. It's not a physical act. The flesh profits nothing. So He's very, very clear about that. So the words, this is my body, I don't believe at all mean the physical body of Jesus somehow materializes in, in the bread. It's a spiritual act that he's talking about. So, that begs the question. When Jesus said, this is my body, when he, when he holds that piece of bread, what does that mean? What, what, what does the Lord's Supper really mean? Well, I'm going to give you this morning five things that the words mean, and there are more. When you really start digging into it, the Lord's Supper has got so much meaning in it but I, because of time, I'm only going to pull out what I thought were the top five things that the Lord's Supper should mean to us when we uh, partake of it. That is proclamation, remembrance, a call to love, a call to self-examination, and a feast on faith. Let's look at the first one, which is proclamation. Look at verse 26. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, Till he comes. So that's number one is proclamation. Every basically what he's saying is every time you observe the Lord's Supper, every time we come together as a body and we observe the Lord's Supper, okay, we are in this with the bread representing his body and the wine or the juice representing the blood, we are proclaiming his death for sinners until he comes. It's almost like we're putting on a play. 
in some way. Everybody with me? We're symbolizing what He did for us. In other words, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're putting on display the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that anybody can understand. This is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you for the forget. Everybody with me? It doesn't matter who's sitting out there watching. It is a very simple, very straightforward representation of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. It dramatizes in symbolic fashion the central facts of the Christian faith, and it announces these facts to anybody who's watching. It's very straightforward, it's very simple, so that those who don't know Jesus, those who don't belong to Jesus, can see in that symbolization the gospel of Jesus Christ, can see that the Lord, that we believe, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave His life for each and every one of us. So there's a, there's a proclamation in it that are, that's not, there's a purpose in it not just for us as Christians, but there's a purpose in it to symbolize to non-believers uh, the gospel as well. Don't stop there, though. The proclamation is also for us. Notice what he says. You do it till when? Till he comes. In other words, the Lord's Supper should keep in the forefront of our minds that he's coming back. We should live our life with that, with that he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. I can tell you, folks, you can get out in the world tomorrow, and it's so easy to forget he's coming back. You can go three days, four days, ten days, two months without thinking He's coming back. That's one of the things the Lord's Supper does every time. You do it till He comes. Do it till He comes. Do it till He comes. He's coming back. And that should stay in the forefront of our minds. Number two tells us is remembrance. Verses 24 to 25. Paul says this, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, let this representation of my body and let this representation of my blood remind you of me. Let it make you remember. Remember the fellowship. Remember the promises. Remember uh, my death and resurrection. Remember the pain. Remember the suffering. Remember everything that I did for you. I was at a wedding last night and was standing in line to get some food and there was a couple behind me and they said, you know, every married couple should go to... This is what they said. They said every... They've probably been married years and years and they said every married couple should go to a wedding at least, you know, go to as many... I think what they said is they should go to as many weddings as you can because there is something about it. When you go to a wedding, doesn't it make you remember? It brings... And I said, I stood in line and I said, well, that's exactly what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring us to remembrance. It makes us remember what He did for us way back then, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. It makes us remember 2,000 years ago His life and His death on a cross and the suffering and the pain that He went through to do what He did for us, to save us, to redeem us. That's why we do it. As often as you do it, do it to remember me. Remember Him. Every time we come, this shouldn't be something we just take flippantly and, man, i got to, you know, man, i got to roast in the oven and I, let's get out of here. No, it should be something we solemnly come to and remember what he did, uh, he did for us. Number three, and this is a call to love. And I want you to stay with me here. 
Look at verses 17 through 20. We studied this a couple weeks ago. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Okay? Now, you may say to me, how in the world is the Lord's Supper? I can understand it being a proclamation. I can even understand it being a call to remembrance. How is the Lord's Supper a call to love? Well, you have to remember, when you read passages of Scripture, there's one word we always bring up, and that word is, anybody? Context. It's always about context. You cannot pull a passage out and build a doctrine on it. You have to look at context. Remember the context that Paul is writing in. You see, it seems to me extremely significant that Paul doesn't introduce the Lord's Supper here in this, in this systematic teaching of church doctrine. He doesn't come to this chapter and he said, Guys, y'all are doing church all wrong. Let me set y'all straight and, and let me tell you how to do everything. The context, he actually introduces the Lord's Supper in the middle of a rebuke of the way they're having church. Do you remember that? Okay. See, in other words, the main issue he's dealing with here in this chapter is this selfish heart that Christians are coming to church with. You remember they come, they, they meet in people's houses, and the first thing they did is they would have a meal called the Love Feast. Everybody remember that? And at the end of that meal, they would observe the Lord's Supper. They were basically emulating what Jesus and the disciples did in the upper room on the night before he, the night before he died. And, but what, what, so they're coming together, but they come with this selfish heart. So what does this, what does this tell us? Well, remember the situation. They come to this house, the well-to-do people who have got food, they've got wine, they bring it, but they get there and they start saying, man, we gotta get ours, right? We don't wanna, let's make sure we get ours before any of these poor people get in here and start, start sucking the wine down. So they'd actually not only drink the wine they needed, just to quench their thirst, they would take more than they needed and get drunk. I mean, it was a selfish thing. I'm going to get mine and more than mine. I'm not going to share. This, this is how they're coming together. Paul literally says, you're coming together for the worse, not the better. In other words, what he, he's saying is, you'd be better off staying home. If you're going to come with that attitude, you'd be better off not coming, not coming to church at all. So they're coming with this selfish attitude I mean, it almost seems impossible that the church could do that uh, when, you, when you read it. And I want you to watch very, very carefully how Paul describes their behavior in verse 22. He says to those people, do you despise the church of God? That's what he asked them. Do you despise the church of God? Now, that is very, very strong language. And I can tell you, if, I, if we had asked those people back then, if we had read that letter in front of the church and I had turned to those well-to-do people and I had said, do you guys despise the church of God? What do you think they would have said? Of course not. We, we love the church. We, we come every time the doors are open. We, we love the people. We, we love being here. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have come if, if we didn't. We love the church. But see, Paul looks beyond the front and sees behind it and asks him a question, do you despise the church? You see, what he's telling us is that you can think you love the church. You can love the getting together. You can love the building. 
You can love being involved in the decorating. You can love coming to the Sunday school church, uh, Sunday school class. You can love all that outside stuff, but underneath, you can actually despise the church. How? Because you treat it as something beneath what it really is. See, there's a real lesson there for us, folks. There are people all over this country that would swear on a Bible they love the church. But what they love is they love the community. They love the the rites and the rituals. They love the getting together. They love all these things, but they don't really appreciate the church for what it really is. You see, folks, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. It's not a community center. It's not something we just get to get. It's the body of Christ. It's the dwelling place of God. And Paul says you're coming in eating and drinking like you're the center of the world. When you do that, when you act selfishly in this, you just, you're, you're, what you're showing is that you despise the church of God because you treat it less than it really is. The church of God should be treated up here. But you're treating it as, a, as an organization. You're treating it as a, as a... You might as well go to the Lions Club. It, it is something holy. It is something set apart. It is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And you treat it less than it is. And when you do that, he literally says, you're showing you despise the church of God. That is extremely strong language. You see, Paul's overriding point in this passage is he's saying, man, I'm not going to commend you for what you're doing. You might be meeting regularly. You might be having meals. You might be doing all the, all the things that look good. But he says, I'm not going to commend you because underneath your behavior contradicts the meanings of the Lord's Supper. You see, what he wants us to see is the Lord's Supper is not just a religious ritual. It is a call to love one another. You see, we take the bread and we take the cup in our hand and we remember that Christ died for not just for me, but Christ died for what? The church. He died for us. See, if you're among genuine Christians, you're going to love the church. You're going to embrace everyone. I mean, what kind of sense does it make? You take the bread and the wine... And remember his sacrifice for the church, but yet in your own actions you won't sacrifice for the church. That's blasphemy. Do you understand? How do we stand there and say, I remember what you did for the church, but yet you'll do nothing for the church. You won't give up anything for the church. You're going to get what's yours. Paul says, that, that's, that, even should, that shouldn't be. Stay home. Don't, don't come and desecrate and defame the Lord's Supper by treating it that way. You see, if you're among the genuine, if you really understand what Christ did for the church, you'll do the same thing. You'll love the church. You'll give for the church. You'll sacrifice for the church because you understand what the church is. It's His body. It's His, his bride. That's what one of the things the Lord's Supper means. Is it's not just a call to remember Him, but it's a call to remember the church, to love the church and understand what the church is. Number four, self-examination. Look at verses 27 to 28. Paul says, whoever therefore eats... Now, this is one we, we... I think we might learn something this morning. I know I did when I went through this. It said this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I want you to notice something. Just as soon as Paul... Remember the first part of the chapter, he's talking about their bad behavior, right? Everybody with me? He he talks about the Lord's Supper, 
And then as soon as he finishes talking about the Lord's Supper, he goes right back to what? Their bad behavior. As soon as he finishes talking about the meaning of the Lord's Supper, he goes right back to talking about the moral issues of the people who are eating it. Now, why would he do that? Again, because there's such a close correlation between the meaning of the Lord's Supper and the, and the heart of the Christians who eat it. There is such a close correlation between the meaning of the Lord's Supper and the heart of the Christian who comes to that table to eat it. That's why the Lord's Supper is a call to self-examination. Now, this is the question that everybody asks. What does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner? You can't tell me there's not one of you here that and ask that question in your mind, right? Because we're going to find out in a minute, if you eat in an unworthy manner, that ain't a good thing. There's going to be consequences for that. So we all want to know what does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner. Now, if I stop right here and I ask you what does it mean in context, how do you answer? In context, what does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner? Paul's been talking about it for a whole chapter. You come in, you don't care about the church. You see what? See the context, folks? See, we tend to come in and worry, man, you know, what about that thing I did the other night? But that's not what Paul's talking about at all. Paul's talking about the way you interact with the church. Paul's talking about the way you view the church. Paul's talking about your heart toward the church. That's the whole context of what he's talking about right here. You see, the context of the passage says it means the following. It means you come to the Lord's Supper and you fail to appreciate what the bread and the cup signify that Christ loved the church and died for the church. You don't understand. See, the church is completely in context here. This is what Paul's talking about. It also means that you fail to feel any remorse for that. See, we all come in and we know we've we failed in so many areas. But the problem is you got people, there, their heart is so selfish and it's so hard that they don't feel any remorse that their attitudes and their actions are inconsistent with the Christ who died. It also means you fail to renounce those attitudes and actions and turn to love. See, that's what Paul wants us to do is to love the church, but we're over here, we're only concerned about ourselves. And that, of course, means that we fail to trust Jesus for forgiveness and for the power to walk in that love. Or let's turn it around and look at it in a positive way. What does it mean to eat the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? That's a good way to put it. How do, what does it mean to come in here and eat the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? Well, let me ask you a question. It means, do you see and do you savor how Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it? When you come to the Lord's table, do you really understand what He did was not just for me, but it was for us as a body? for the church, how He loved the church and died for the church. When your actions fall short in the church, when you've, when you've gossiped or when you've, you've, you've not encouraged someone or exhorted someone or you've done something not to build the church up but bring the chance, do you feel remorse for that? You see, if you do, that's, that's a good thing because we all fail. That's not, the issue is not the failure. The issue is becomes how, what about at, when you examine yourself, is there remorse there? Is there repentance there? Do you understand that I've walked in actions that are inconsistent with the love of Christ for His church and, 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 and for the less well-off in particular? 
which was the, the situation here in Corinth? Do you renounce those attitudes and actions and turn to a path of love? You know, I'm wrong. I'm not, I don't want to do that anymore, Lord. And then do you trust Jesus, not only for the forgiveness of those attitudes and actions, but do you trust Him for the power to begin to, begin to walk in love towards your brothers and sisters in the church? I mean, I, this, when I studied this over the last couple of weeks, this was the thing that came to me is that, you know, when, when Pastor Henry leads us in the Lord's Supper and, and you know, you, most of us sit there and our mind is, even, even then, can we admit our mind tends to immediately focus on us? What did I do? What, what, as opposed to focusing on the body and on the church? And I just began to see that in the context, this is all about the, the... And again, I'm not saying that's wrong. I think we should focus on ourselves and on our attitudes and actions and, and other things. But the point is, in context, this is all about the body of Christ. This is all about the church. And, and I began to see that in a way I never had before. Listen, there are no perfect saints at the Lord's table. There never will be. All Christians are welcome. We're all debtors to grace. Forgiveness is our only hope of acceptance. We all know that. There's nobody comes that's perfect. But I can tell you this. We, listen, the last part of this scripture, we have to be very, very careful. We talk a lot today about God's love, and God does love us. But, and God, we talk about God's forgiveness, and God does forgive us. Those are all extremely true, and I'm thankful for those. But listen, you cannot walk through this life thinking that God's love, and, and, and because God is loving and God is forgiving, He's just going to overlook everything, and that there's no discipline involved. We know in families, if you're a loving father, you will discipline your children, will you not? Loving fathers, loving mothers discipline their children. And I can tell you, if someone in the body continues to despise the church, continues to treat the church less than it really is, the father will not hold back his hand. He will discipline you. And that is made very clear in the last part of this chapter. Look at verse 29 through 34. Paul goes on. Now watch what he says, folks. For anyone who eats and drinks, what's the problem that they're doing? Without discerning the body. Everybody see that? If you eat and drink and you don't discern the body, you don't under... Now, let me ask you a question. What body is he talking about? What body is he talking about? Is he talking about his body? Or is he talking about the body of Christ? Folks, it's the one and the same. Do you not understand? We are the body of Christ. If you don't understand that what he did, he did for the body, and we are the body. See, this is the whole point here. I don't know. I can't tell you. Does he mean his body? Does he mean the body of Christ? I, to me, it just it, it's both. Because we are his body. We cannot lose sight of that. If you don't understand what his body means, if you don't get that, if you continue to despise that, if you don't discern it and understand it, and you go ahead and eat and drink, Paul says you eat and drink judgment on yourself. He goes on to say, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have already died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, 
we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is a, this is a really disturbing scripture, to be quite honest with you. He goes on to say, So then, my brother... Now, watch what he says. Now, everybody see what he just said? You don't discern the body. You're eating, drinking, judgment on yourself. Now, watch what he says. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Everybody see that? When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Put your selfish hearts aside. You know, put the selfishness aside. If you're that hungry, eat at home. (laughs) See, he's talking about this whole idea of coming into the body and just being selfish. It's all about me. It's all about what I need, what I want, what I deserve, what can I get. If you don't, if you come into that, into that, into the Lord's Supper with that attitude, See, that's the problem that Paul is is talking about. He says, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Again, this this is a pretty shocking and sobering scripture. He's saying that the weakness and the illness and the death of some Christians, and watch what he says, is God's judgment on them for their attitudes toward the church for their selfish hearts. He says, some of you are weak, some of you are ill, and some have have already died. But I want you to watch this. It's God's judgment, but it's not God's condemnation. In fact, one of the things that we saw here, let me go back here. Look at verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be, what? Condemned. You see, what he's telling us is here is God is judging, but he's not condemning. He's disciplining us, but he's not condemning. In fact, what this tells us is that God has allowed death in some cases to prevent condemnation with the world. He's actually allowed some people to die. As a, in other words, almost let them die before they did more damage, before they could go too far. He, he'll let them get sick, let them get ill, and even let some of them die. You see, Scripture is clear in these verses that sometimes illness, sometimes weakness, and sometimes even death is still God's grace. Does everybody see that? It's still God's grace. He's saying, I'm going to take you before you go too far. I'm going to judge you so that you won't be condemned with the world. Even in those cases, it is still something that's designed by a gracious, loving Heavenly Father to keep us from being condemned to hell with the world. God is sometimes tender, and He's sometimes tough. He's sometimes sweet, and He's sometimes severe, like any loving Heavenly Father should be. But it is all grace and all mercy for those who believe in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to answer one question before I stop here, and that is this. Is the Lord's Supper symbolic only? Is the Lord's Supper symbolic only? Got to know. Okay. There is one view of the Lord's Supper that says, yes, it is symbolic only. For example, here's one. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. There are people who believe it's just symbolic. It's just, a, it's just something you do, and it's strictly symbolic, and it doesn't mean nothing else. In other words, the symbols of the bread and the wine serve to point our thoughts to Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? They serve to help us remember, but it's just symbolic. The only real communion you're having with Christ is in your imagination. Everybody, 
Everybody with me? That's one view. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that it's strictly symbolic. Even though I do believe it is dangerously wrong to say that the bread becomes the body of Christ and the juice of the wine becomes the blood, it actually turns into physical. I think that's dangerous. I think that's wrong. I still don't think that what happens in the Lord's Supper is just an intellectual recall. Okay? It, let me give you an example. It's like reading the Bible. Saying the Lord's Supper, where's my Bible? Saying the Lord's Supper is just a symbolic act. It's like saying this is just a book. Are you with me? You see, folks, I can come to this book and I can read it and I can, I can read it and memorize it from end to end as a non-believer and I can walk away and it's just symbolic. It's just a book. But as a Christian, when I open this book and I read it and I meditate on it, what does it do? It changes me. It gets inside my heart and my spirit and the Holy Spirit does something with it to strengthen me and make me into somebody. Everybody with me? It's not just a book. Well, this Lord's Supper is exactly the same. It's not just a symbolic act. When, when we come to the Lord's Supper, you see, um, here's another one. The Westminster Catechism says it this way. The body and blood of Christ are spiritually present to the faith of the receiver, no less truly and really than the elements themselves are to their outward senses. What he's saying is that when we come to the Lord's Supper and we're remembering, and we come and we take the bread and we take the wine and we remember what, what the Holy Spirit comes in and does something with that. Are you with me? See, He strengthens our faith. He makes us stronger. It's, we should walk away from that stronger than we did when we came. Just the same way we should walk away from that Bible stronger than when we came to it. So I think it's somewhere... Can I explain it? No. I, I can't. I don't think it turns into the body and the blood of Christ. I don't think it's strictly symbolic. I think there's something that happens there uh, in the middle. Look at what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16-18. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? You see, there's, you're participating. You're, if it's just symbolic, there's something else that goes on when we, when we partake of the, of, of, the, of the Lord's Supper. And that leads us to the fifth thing, which is a feast by faith. Remember John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know, what happens is we eat the bread and we drink the cup. What we're doing is we're coming to Him and we're believing on Him again, are we not? We're coming to, when we come to that supper, we should be saying, Lord, I stake my life on You. I believe in You. I trust in You. I remember what You did for me. And, and as we come to the table and we trust Him and we believe in Him, that, that our faith turns that into this life-sustaining, soul-generating thing that we do. I can't explain it. But I can tell you, we should walk away from there satisfied in our faith, satisfied in our soul. Not because we ate a piece of bread and, 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 and drank a little cup of juice, but because we came to Jesus because we believed on Jesus, because we remembered Jesus. See, what he's saying is Jesus is saying, let the proclamation of my death and the remembrance of all that I am for you awaken and renew your faith, draw you into deeper communion with me. You see, this is my body and my blood means that we come to Him and we feast spiritually, not physically. See, the supper proclaims and through faith, we feast on that proclamation. We feast on the risen, living Christ 
so that He satisfies our soul, sweetens our love for Him, and of course breaks the power of sin uh, in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, 